Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show with me, Alice. Join me as I go delving through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. From tales of pirates and privateers to murderers, tragic accidents to wartime escapades, this podcast has it all. And this episode is no exception, so get ready to give your ears a treat and maybe learn a few things on the way. On the 27th of December, 1869, the first production of the pantomime Robinson Crusoe was being held at the new Theatre Royal in Bristol, and everyone was excited. When talking about this particular theatre, George Bernard Shaw had said that its pantomimes are the best in the country. People started to appear as early as 4pm, and by 6pm, the narrow and steep gangway leading to the pit and gallery was crowded by hundreds of people, while there were even more on the road outside. There was an enormous crowd, all eager to get inside and see the show, and as soon as the pit and gallery doors were opened, they all rushed in. A woman of about 50 was the first to fall, possibly Elizabeth Hall from Crofts End in St George. Her body caused many of those pushing in to fall on top of her. In the end, Nearly 30 people tumbled over one another in a heap, with those behind still pressing forwards. Word of the Week And as we're in December now, I can start with the first festive word, which is... Carol, as in the singing. The word carol is believed to derive from late Latin carola, a word for a choral song that was earlier applied to a musician who accompanied a chorus. And that particular Latin word can be traced to the Greek verb carolian, meaning to accompany a chorus on a reed instrument, which itself is a combination of a choros and orlian. In medieval times, carol referred to a round dance with singing done by the dancers during pagan celebrations, such as May Day and the winter solstice. The word was also used for the song to which they danced. In opposition to these pagan carols, Christians began writing their own religious songs during the late Middle Ages, mainly for the celebration of Christmas, giving us the songs we associate as carols during the festive season. 
And if you found that nugget of information interesting, you'll be happy to know that I'll be doing a special Christmas episode talking about the history behind some of our favourite carols. For some reason, in the chaos that ensued, someone threw a lighted box of fuses over the heads of the congested crowd and a cry of fire was heard. The crowd then fought to get back outside to safety and a huge crush took place, which eventually left 18 people dead, trampled by the crowd. God spare my life! Lord have mercy on me! Don't tread on me! These agonising cries for help came from everywhere. One poor man who had fallen was heard to cry, I cannot breathe. I must die among the rest. Witnesses said that they were jammed in on all sides by the pressure which seemed to be crushing the life out of them. The crowd swayed, rolled backwards and forwards like a great restless wave of an angry sea, and the cries for help from the women hideous mixed with the sobbing of those underfoot. In all the chaos at the theatre, Edward Lester told how he saw a rope being lowered from the slate roof of the rear of the next-door Garrick Hotel, and several people were actually being hauled up onto the low roof from the crowd below. Edward was lucky enough to be able to grab the rope himself and get to safety. One of the last to be rescued this way was a little girl, after which the rope was pulled so hard by the frantic crowd below that it slipped from the hands of those on the roof to be trampled underfoot by the people below. A boy named Charles Talbot, living in South Green Street, Hotwell Road, was the first to be rescued and he was found to be very seriously injured. A police constable took him to the shop of Mr Saunders a chemist at the top of Park Street. He took one look at the boy and, noting how badly injured he was, suggested that he be taken straight away to the Royal Infirmary. And he was, but he died soon after admission. His body was taken to the home he shared with his father, a dockgate man at the Cumberland Basin. There were policemen on guard just inside the theatre door, but they were unaware of the chaos When they were told of a boy who'd fallen down just outside, police officer Charland pushed his way out into the avenue and immediately saw the young boy's head on the ground just inside the passage, his body being outside and people walking over him. The officer grabbed hold of the boy by the shoulders and arm, but was, himself, pushed to the ground. Several people walked over both of them, but eventually he managed to get the boy to the green room, where the boy was cared for and recovered. The police officer then returned to the entrance when he heard the cry of fire and smoke could be seen coming outside. Along with PC Short, Officer Charland dashed to try and help. They came across one man dressed like a sailor who was insane with panic 
and kept striking the officers furiously. With the assistance of some civilians, the officers managed to force the crowd back several yards, thus revealing the shocking sight that remained. There was a pile of about 40 to 50 men, women and children, in some areas four deep. They were in various states ranging from dazed to deceased. In an interview with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, he declared that his famous pop star was beyond sleigh. And Santa Claus's favourite singer of all time was Elf Is Presley. The Big Bristol to London the Stroll. The Big Bristol to London Stroll. The Big Bristol to London Stroll. Hello and welcome to the Big Bristol to London Stroll where we take you along the scenic routes via canals on a gentle walk to our capital. Along the way, we'll discuss the places we see and anything we spot that takes our fancy. Sometimes, we're even joined along the way by family and friends. So come join us as we take the big stroll. And this week sees us in Windsor. Now, I could spend the whole show talking about Windsor, and in particular, the main royal residence. But there is another one there, and that's what I want to talk about today. I am talking about Frogmore House and Garden. The name comes from the fact that the low-lying marshy area has spawned loads of frogs. From 1709 to 1738, the house was leased to the Duke and Duchess of Northumberland, and after that, a succession of families until Queen Charlotte, who needed a country retreat for herself and her unmarried daughters. She purchased the lease in 1792. One of the main attractions for me stands in the gardens, and that's the mausoleum of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, which is in the west side of the gardens at Frogmore House. The Queen and Prince had long planned to have a mausoleum, and within four days of Prince Albert's death in December 1861, the Queen had chosen a site and there they would rest together. You'll also find the mausoleum of Queen Victoria's mother, the Duchess of Kent, and in recent history, it's where the Duke and Duchess of Sussex had their official engagement photos taken and held their reception after their wedding on the 19th of May 2019. But alas, my friends, it's only open for three days in June. So if you have plans to visit it next year, expect it to be packed. But a place you can enjoy, and for free, is the Eton College Natural History Museum. First opened in 1875, this little-known gem of a find has lots to see. I was intrigued by the replica of the botanist Sir Joseph Banks' cabin from Captain Cook's Endeavour Voyage. You can also learn about Charles Darwin and his voyage on the Beagle. And let's not forget Fatty Plus, a rather overstuffed platypus. The weather was pretty grim, so we may have spent more time in the museum than actually walking this time, but we'll make up for it next week. And now I'm off to take some more pictures of Fatty Plus. So join me next time when we continue our big stroll. Even with all the chaos in the entranceway, some people had already managed to get inside the theatre 
and settle down to watch the show, oblivious to those still coming in. They may even have become separated from family and friends that had become victims of the crush. One such lad was carried away by the force of the crowd from his brother, Freddy. He assumed that he had managed to get inside and continued to enjoy the jovial fun of the clowns and harlequins. He then went home and asked about Freddy, but Freddy hadn't returned. His mother soon learnt of the accident and went in search of her son. She found his bruised and battered body amongst the others, all with severe injuries and other victims with mental scars from the horrors they witnessed. When the panic cleared and the rush subsided, those on the ground could be assisted and 23 people were taken away with injuries and 14 of the ones right at the bottom of the pile were quite obviously dead. The remainder were taken to the infirmary where four more died of their wounds. 14 bodies were taken to the refreshment room and laid out. Four others were taken to the infirmary. The panto, surprisingly, was not stopped. Why? Because the manager, Mr James Henry Shute, feared more deaths would follow if he cancelled the show. When the play was over and the people inside learned the real story behind the commotion at the beginning, the scenes of sorrow outside both the theatre and the infirmary were said to be appalling. When the manager, James Shute, first became aware of the incident, he was anxious to close the performance and dismiss the audience. He was advised, though, that by pursuing that course of action, he would create a new panic, which may well lead to a new catastrophe. The Bristol Daily Post said, It may be worth mentioning that the catastrophe remained all but entirely unknown on the inside of the house until the performances closed and the audience came out. A sudden stoppage of the receipts drew the pit money and check takers to the matter at once, and we believe that they joined in the efforts employed to get out the sufferers. The manager, treasurer and officials in attendance on the boxes were likewise necessarily informed of the sad event. Beyond them, however, scarcely anyone before the curtain was aware of it, and on the stage the secret was confined to the stage manager, the head carpenter and one or two others. We are assured by a member of the orchestra that he played through the night without the smallest suspicion that anything was amiss, and that when he heard the mournful tidings on quitting the house, he was as much pained and astonished as ever he had been in his life. It was a most fortunate thing that this ignorance so widely prevailed, for, as has already been remarked, a panic within the theatre might have proved even more disastrous than that which ended so tragically without. It was agreed that those already in the building were totally unaware of the drama unfolding at the entranceway. Shute allowed the performance to continue with some abridgments, but the house was closed the next day. A few days later, friends and family came to the theatre to claim the dead. Most of the bodies showed evidence of the last struggle for life. The clothes, in many cases, were half-torn. There were cuts and bruises and some of the breastbones were crushed into the hearts so that death would have been instantaneous. There were distraught mothers who, when they saw their children, broke out into low wailings of distress. Men of iron sobbed like infants over the remains of loved ones. 
The father of one girl, Mary Ellen Sherwood, looked at her body dubiously, seeing her bruised and battered features where once was a fine, pretty girl. He couldn't quite believe what he was seeing was his child. It was when he found a necklace around her neck with a locket containing an image of a young man that he knew that he realised it was his 16-year-old girl and he sobbed as if his heart would break. <laughs> as a result of this disaster, Shoot, the manager, implemented safety precautions, ones that Frank Matcham, architect of the later refurbishment, was to bear in mind in all his buildings. It had a devastating effect on Shoot, both emotionally and financially. An inquest was held, about which the Western Daily Press said, An inquest was opened on the bodies on Tuesday afternoon before the city coroner, Mr H.S. Wasborough, at the Griffin Inn, Griffin Street. The jury proceeded to view the bodies and, evidence of identity having been given, the inquiry was adjourned. On Thursday, the inquest was resumed when the jury, after 15 minutes consultation, returned a verdict of accidental death fully exonerating the proprietor of the theatre from all blame. Once the coroner had dealt with the necessary certificates for burial of the deceased, Mr Shute organised sending the bodies to the homes of their relatives or friends in a hearse. Timothy Donovan, a street pitcher of 2 Jacob Street, St Phillips, whose son and workmate, Patrick, was one of the victims, objected to this saying that he was going to carry his son home in his arms. The coroner declared that this wasn't a good idea, but Timothy held fast. It was even suggested that the body be taken by hearse without a casket, and for a moment Timothy assented. But he turned round just as he was walking out of the doors and declared no, he wanted to take his boy home himself. The coroner said, No, my good friend, that will not do. There is, at present, so much excitement in the streets. In the end, Timothy Donovan consented. August 1884, the Theatre Royal Park Row was renamed the Prince's Theatre, a name which it would retain for the rest of its life. Henry Shute's sons, James and George, took over and reconstructed the seating at the theatre and installed a plush new refreshment room, and it was them who renamed the theatre. The leading architect, Frank Matcham, redecorated the theatre throughout in 1889 with electric lighting added in 1895. Frank Matcham refurbished it again in 1902, and its first production afterwards was Merry England on Coronation Day. It was now the most lavish provincial theatre hosting the finest performances. 
1907, a new ventilation system was installed, making it one of the grandest and most comfortable of provincial venues. As you can imagine, when late-night entertainment and drinking are combined, there are many problems to contend with. Students were often blamed for rowdy behaviour in the gallery. In 1888, the last night of Babes in the Wood on the 18th of February was spoiled by the antics of a group in the gallery who shouted down the manager, threw squibs onto the stage during the ballet and hurled dried peas at the actresses. The miscreants turned out to be in the form of one solicitor, one traveller, three medical and three law students and the leading members of the three local football clubs. I've been a bride made for twenty-two brides. This one I'll make twenty-three. Twenty-two maidens I've helped off the shelf. No doubt it seems a bit strange. Being a bride made is no good to me, and I think I could do with a change. Why am I all in 1912? Jimmy Chute died, and the princes became, for the first time a limited company. The day-to-day -day running of the building was left in the hands of Mrs. Shute, the widow of Jimmy, and her co-director, John Hart. The days of staging the finest in-house plays and musicals were waning, and the future of the princes as a playhouse were numbered. More and more touring productions were engaged, and more than ever, the pantomime revenue was needed to support the theatre. By the time Mrs. Shute and Hart were in charge, the theatre's year consisted of 18 weeks musicals, 10 weeks comedies, 2 weeks of drama, and 11 weeks of pantomime. On the night of the 24th of November, 1940, the Prince's Theatre in Park Row, along with the ex-Garrick's Hotel, were destroyed by enemy action. The Colosseum Theatre, which was opposite it, was also destroyed. The Bristol Hippodrome took on the Prince's role as the major touring theatre for the rest of the war, as it managed to remain mostly intact, apart from some slight damage to its front entrance. But the Prince's Theatre will always remain as one of the most spectacular theatres Bristol has ever had. Why am I always a bridesmaid, never the blushing a bride? Here's some more information about the Prince's Theatre. The theatre was built on the site of the former residence of the Bale family, a grand house where Queen Charlotte, wife of George III, is said to have visited, and why, I presume, we also have Charlotte Street off Park Street. The theatre was built by Davis and Sons for James Henry Shute of the Theatre Royal King Street, Bristol, and cost around £17,000 to construct taking six months. The theatre was designed by the well-known architect C.J. Phipps and was originally opened as the Theatre Royal Park Row on Monday the 14th of October 1867 with a production of The Tempest.
The house could seat 2,154 people. That was 500 more than the one in King Street. The gallery would take 700 people, and the pit itself 800. The pit, or what we'd call stalls now, was 64 feet wide. The width of the stage, including scene docks, was 107 feet. So the whole place was quite sizeable by anyone's standards. Let it be soon, I shall wake up in the morning on my own honeymoon. Hi, I'm Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, hermit, long-time depression sufferer and caffeine fiend. In Not Before Coffee, I talk about everything from books, TV and movies to the more serious topics, like my own personal journey through life, struggling with various mental health issues. But not until I've had at least three mugs of the roasted bean and temporarily sated my long-term addiction. So, if you want to get to know more about me and all the ways I pass my time during the week, not including work, and you fancy the idea of hearing me talk about the things that interest me, New books, old books, TV and movies of all kinds, plus the weird and wonderful of my everyday, and how I got into writing about cars for a living, despite not having a driving licence, then tune in to Not Before Coffee. Found where all good podcasts are, so pretty much everywhere. In the news today, in court, Mark Collins stated that it was when he was standing in front of the mirror naked, that was when he realised he would be kicked out of Ikea. in the day facts let's start off with the 4th of december 1952 when a killer fog begins in london england the term smog is then coined on the 5th of december 1717 english pirate blackbeard ransacks the merchant sloop margaret and keeps her captain Henry Bostock prisoner for eight hours before releasing him. Bostock would later provide the first record of Blackbeard's appearance and the source for his name. On the 6th of December 1849, Harriet Tubman escapes from slavery in Maryland for the second and final time. She would return to rescue other slaves over a period of eight years. During this time, she used the secret Underground Railroad to free over 300 slaves and successfully evade capture. On the 7th of December, 1941, the Imperial Japanese Navy, with 353 planes, attacked the US fleet at Pearl Harbor Naval Base in Hawaii, killing 2,403 people. On the 7th of December, 1967, Otis Redding records his song, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, co-written and produced by guitarist Steve Cropper at Stack Studios in Memphis, Tennessee. And lastly, on the 8th of December, 
1864, the Clifton Suspension Bridge, designed by Isambard Kingdom Brunel, is finally opened in Bristol, five years after his death. Well, that, my friends, is the end of the show. But don't worry, I'll be here, same time, same place, next week. Before I go, though, I really must thank those who bring this whole show to life. And this week we have Andrea Reid, Sam Roberts, Kate Kendall and Joe Wilson from St Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, as well as Steve Shepherd from Bradley Stoke Radio and Ray from the excellent Not Before Coffee podcast. Thank you for listening to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. This has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And if you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. And if you'd like to support the show with a donation, however small, you can go to ko-fi.com, spelt K-O hyphen F-I. And if you're interested in buying merchandise, featuring the show's logo, then pop over to tpublic.com where you'll find lots of things to choose from. And if you want to get in touch with me, it's perfectly easy. You'll be able to find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking for at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk So until next time guys, take care and look after each other.